listeners, this is Interfaith-ish. I'm your host, Jack Gordon, and typically you can find us live on the air every other Wednesday on Tacoma Radio, where we bring you bold conversations about what we believe, why we believe, and how we navigate the common ground and differences between our traditions. A few months ago, I got an email from Professor A. Dave Lewis, a scholar whose work focuses on the intersection of religion and comics. Now, dear listeners, you may know that those are two of my favorite topics to discuss at length, and I'm a big fan of Dave's work as organizer of the website Sacred and Sequential. So I was thrilled to hear from Dave that he was coming to D.C. Not only did we get a chance to meet up, but Dave brought along a couple of friends, religious scholar Dan Clanton Jr. and Asif Gamzu, director of museum education at the Museum of the Jewish People in Tel Aviv. It was a bit of an impromptu recording, so the audio quality isn't the best, but it's worth hanging in there as we pinball from discussing Mao's to The Expanse to Miss Marvel to Will Eisner and many, many more. In fact, I had to make a list of all the references to the comics and other media mentioned in our conversation, so look for that in the show notes. And so, without further ado, Interfaith Avengers Assemble! It's time to get into some Interfaith-ish. We're meeting for the first time, so tell me a little bit about what, what you guys are working on. Okay, so that is authentic elevator. Yeah, that's it. We're yeah, yeah, just really at the hotel. He's dismounting <laughs> from the elevator <laughs> to tell you all. <laughs> you can tell everybody it's a huge mechanical guillotine that's just coming. <laughs> okay, so my name is Asaf Gamzu. I'm currently uh, director of museum education at the Museum of the Jewish People in Tel Aviv. Before that, I was curator at the Israeli Cartoon Museum, so that kind of makes me uh, in the niche of religious studies and comic studies, specifically Jewish and Israeli culture and history. Uh, I'm here to receive an award for Comics and Sacred Text. It's an edited uh, comic anthology, which I edited with uh, Ken Colton Frum from Hufferford College, in which also a Dave Lewis is a part of. So I'm here to happily receive uh, the award and, you know, and also meet and mingle uh, with you, with people from the field. Exactly. See what's up. Cool. Cool. Well, welcome to the U.S. Well, thank you. Thank you. What about you, Dan? So um, I'm, I'm here to uh, chair a session and also to present a portion of uh, a book project that I'm working on. Uh, I'm I'm a Bible scholar by training, so uh, but I'm also interested in the afterlife of Bible or reception history, and uh, so my project that I'm presenting part of is on how Bible and religion are used and portrayed in the Hercule Poirot novels of Agatha Christie. Oh wow! Okay. So um, I'm presenting part of that tomorrow, just looking at one novel, just looking at Evil Under the Sun. And how is it? I don't. I, I've never read an Agatha Christie novel. Maybe I've, I've been deprived of good literature. Well, the interesting thing about that is that um, Bible is a, a kind of muted presence in her novels. But when those novels get adapted into feature films, or especially the BBC TV series uh-huh. with David Suchet as Poirot, um, religion and Bible move much more to the fore. And so that's going to be included as part of the book as well, as we talk about transmedia adaptations. So I, I mean, I'm excited about yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> Do you like like curling up on a Friday evening, you know, by the fire with some tea and a good Agatha Christie novel? Absolutely. Is that something? That Absolutely. You're, <laughs> it's, I, I'm, I, I'm, you're the target demographic. I'm also. old. I'm old before my time. <laughs> so you've been doing it since you was 13. <laughs> but you're catching up every day. I try to. I try to. That's a good way to think about it. Yeah, yeah. I'm not yeah. old yet, yeah, but yeah. getting there. Getting there. Just keep, just keep trying. 
<laughs> what about you, Dave? What's going on with you? Yeah, um, I'm here uh, wearing both of my hats. You can't see this in podcast and radio land, <laughs> but I'm wearing two hats. Uh, no, I, I am here to read and listen to a number of presentations regarding uh, religious studies and comic studies, and that's been a uh, focus of my research for a long time, but I'm actually presenting in a slightly different area, uh, which is the area of graphic medicine, where comics and graphic novels intersect medicine, healthcare, patient stories, uh, clinician training, uh, and I'm going to be speaking on how comics that uh, portray cancer narratives actually borrow some symbols and some visual rhetoric from deafness uh, comics, comics about uh, being hearing impaired. So I get to like switch hemispheres of my brain. Uh, and oh, since Asif brought up his reward, uh, I'm also here to, to receive a grant award for establishing a graphic medicine uh, collection at my school, uh, MCPHS University. Mm-hmm. So I'm never far from the religion and comics stuff. I never want to leave it. I'm just, I'm just expanding my capacities. Yeah. Well, you know, medicine and religion usually intertwine. It's a death they, and, and... They absolutely do. And in fact, I, I came to graphic medicine not like in spite of religion and comics. I was noticing how often uh, healthcare issues and medical issues were coming up in the religion comics I was studying. I mean, if you just take... Art Spiegelman's Mouse, mm-hmm. Pulitzer Prize winning Art Spiegelman's Mouse. Um, you can, of course, look at that, and you should look at that as a Holocaust survivor's narrative and, and a family story, but you can also look at it as portrayal of depression, to pray, uh, oh, totally. of survivor's yeah. guilt, of um, even of dysentery, mm. uh, even of aging uh, medical concerns, and uh, Vladek taking his pills. So, yes, I see these lenses very much as overlapping. I usually have to talk about them in two different breaths or two different classes at the university, sure, but sure. they're very aligned in my mind. Yeah. And so, and you've also, for, for a number of years, have been running uh, Sacred and Sequential. Yes, so I have. Talk a little bit about, about that. What's, what, what was behind that project and where that's at? Sacred and Sequential, I want to say that around 2012, 13, 14, somewhere in there, um, Sacred and Sequential came about as being at one of these conferences and really looking at how many people, how many scholars were quite interested uh, in religion and comics, but we only ran into each other sporadically. We had no mechanism by, with, by which to either talk to each other as a group or present things as a group. So. It remains still just a loosely knit organization. There's no membership fee. There's no, there's no gatekeeper by any means. We feature um, work uh, either at our website or through the sporadic podcast we put out there um, from all different viewpoints, as long as they are, one, serious-minded, uh, academic, study-focused, and again, uh, at the intersection of religion and comics, in addition to these guys and your own work, because um, I know you dabble in the comics I try to, as, as well, as, most as I can, just to be able to uh, have an excuse to read more comics. No, it's great. <laughs> um, I, I do want to say that we have participants in this 
uh, men, women, Jews, Gentile, Christians, Muslims, Buddhists, uh, Americans, international community, nuns and atheists, mm-hmm. N-O-N-E-S. Yeah. I don't know if we have an actual and, sister and nun. Yeah, she'll, she'll get on there somewhere. Um, but it's been a blast. We, we've kept the site running for some time and keep a reasonably active uh, Twitter and email yeah. list going. Yeah. So what are, your, what are some of your, your favorite comics that are coming out these days that you think have a, do a good job at... at uh, at, uh, at tackling issues of, of religion. I did, I did a fist pump there that you can't see because I don't usually have an answer to this. I will attest <laughs> to his fist pump <laughs> on the podcast. But there's one that's coming at religion sideways that I love, and it's called Die, D-I-E. Okay. Um, and it's, uh, I believe it's through Image Comics, uh-huh. but it's Die as in rolling dice. A, a die, and uh, ostensibly, it's about a group of adults who were kids, as many of us were, uh, that were stuck in a fantastic Dungeons and Dragons environment mm. that they barely survived as kids. And this is giving nothing away. It happens in the first issue. They are pulled back there to this traumatic space as adults. Wow. Now, I love fantasy spaces that have made-up religions that uh, you can talk about the religion of the elf people or of the dwarf gods or because taking that one step away from our space I think lets us engage in these larger ideas more freely and as I think I argue in your book Asif, more freely may also mean more really in a, in a way that in the Mirce Eliade's sense of getting closer towards the real, getting less stuck in the mundane. So even though it is a quite a fictional comic book series and doesn't address specifically Christianity or, or, or Zoroastrianism or anything like that, I am really enjoying it for both its depth and the distance you can take on it with religion. Displacing religion like that is mm. often really useful. So in classes on religion and pop culture, I often ask students to watch an episode of, uh, for example, Deep Space Nine or Galactica or something, and then ask them questions about how is religion presented there, what kind of analogs can we draw, and students are often, as, as you mentioned, students are often much more willing to talk about, I don't want to say fake religions, but fantasy religions. Yeah. Um, in a way that they would never talk about their own tradition, just because a lot of students aren't, they don't have the critical capacity yet or vocabulary yet to talk about their own religion in the same way they can about fantasy religions. That's and it. fantasy as opposed to just another religion. Like you can look at, at the yeah. practice of another religion that's right. practiced in this world, whether it's a, a quote unquote popular religion or institutionalized religion, and, and either poke fun at it or say that's weird or say I don't get it or ask questions or something. But what you're saying is, is that there's an even deeper level of critical thought around something that we know exists in basically a, a fictional world. Right, yeah. And also I would add that when we construct fictional religions and then we look at them, we can understand our own assumptions about what religion is sure. and how that works and, what, right. and how do you engage with that, which is many times, many times can just be truly just a reflection of Christianity or Abrahamic religions in general, but that that fakeness, and I'm putting air quotes here, mm-hmm. that that distance can 
let us look at ourselves more critically mm -hmm. through that. And I mean, it's wonderful to do in comics. I'm a huge advocate of comics, but even if your listeners aren't immersed in comics, you can look at almost any entertainment medium and see a similar thing happening. I know uh, I've had so many Christians, and in fact non-Christians. I have a friend uh, uh, who's Muslim that's saying how inspirational and empowering the Narnia series was mm. to him. Now, if it was all plainly labeled Christian the whole way through, I don't think it would have sold. I don't think people would have picked <laughs> up the book in the way that they have with that distance. Um, one friend of mine, though, pointed out that he, as a Muslim, read it, not knowing that it was a, a Christian allegory, Christian analog, and he read Islam right into it. Mm, exactly. Really is yeah. the, the, the sacrifice of Hussein um, instead of uh, Christ's sacrifice, right. of Jesus' sacrifice. So uh, I think that I love it in the comic books. I'm a huge proponent. Of the, I think the comics do something special. But you could be a fan of music, of, of television, of film, of poetry, of dance, and enjoy this removed analysis of religion and spirituality. One of the, one of the jokes that I like to make with, with friends is if you're already into guys with funny names, funny costumes, and superpowers, you probably also will like comic books. Yeah. And that goes for wrestling, too. You can get some I mean, really devout wrestling fans in there. That's pretty close already. Yeah, exactly. One of the things that I published recently is a, an examination of the, 19, uh, the, the uh, 1978 uh, Superman, the movie, mm -hmm. and looking at the ways in which you could read that Jewishly or ways that you could read that uh, from a Christian vantage point, and exposing students to that kind of ambiguity, I think is really useful because it highlights the perspectival nature of all the all this interpretation that we're talking about here and not just students i mean i know Absolutely. as yeah. instructors and academes we're thinking about the students but i think it is beneficial to people of any age to enjoy this artwork or this entertainment and then enter it from any number of perspectives just one that they haven't uh, uh done necessarily before before doing it yeah, I'll, I'll i'll add to that that i'm as a museum educator and educator in my past, I'm kind of one leg in the academia and one leg out that really one of, I think, the most important things we can do uh, is show just any person the, the role that religion and religious text still plays in our lives today, for better and for worse, but to make it to make it look to make him look at it, he him or her, of course, and then and then be able to engage with it critically and say, okay, if that is, then what do I do with it, right? And how do I engage with it? And how much do I want? Instead of it just either being a binary of I'm either religious or um, or I'm not, which is of course just not the way the world works. Yeah, yeah. Right. What about from the um, the creator side? Do you feel like there are specific creators that you either that you've you've met, cultivated, you know, some sort of a nice back and forth with, and know that they have a, a pretty uh, well versed background in some of these textual issues or theology, what have you? Sure. We, we actually were just talking about how, uh, about how Dave and I met, and we met as a result of two, two biblically-based graphic novels coming out at exactly the same time. So Steve Ross's book, Marked, and J.T. Waldman's uh, adaptation of Esther. And at that point, uh, I was 
a, I was at a position in the Society of Biblical Literature where I could put sessions together. And so we decided we're gonna put a session together with creators. So we had Steve Ross come, we had, we had JT come, we had, uh, we had Dave come and talk about his... Uh, I masqueraded as a creator that day. Yes. Yeah. And it was fantastic because you know, here we are, all biblical scholars, and we're talking about adaptations of biblical literature in the form of sequential art. And it was a wonderful way to start pushing comic studies on biblical scholars who ordinarily I don't think would have not just engaged it but would wouldn't have even known that it existed hmm. and since then you know we've had sessions that talked about the pedagogical usefulness of, of comic art we've had uh, we've had more sessions that include uh, biblically based graphic novels or comics or examples of graphic Bibles um, right alongside other examples of the history of interpretation of biblical literature. Mm -hmm. So we're we're hoping to normalize that treatment of, of comic art within the Society of Biblical Literature mm -hmm. as an example of the history of interpretation right alongside other examples. Yeah, so it's been happening for a while. It has been, yeah. yeah. About, about 10 years ago, um, I got to co-organize a conference at Boston University with Christine Hoff Kramer, and that conference largely became uh, the book that came out approximately a year later called Graven Images, uh, Religion and Comic Books and Graphic Novels. I only raise it because uh, not only did we get to include comics creators at that conference, but they wrote pieces mm -hmm. along with all the academes and scholars and eggheads. So we had G. Willow Wilson. Uh, uh, we had uh, Mark Smiley. This was before Smiley. she was doing Miss Marvel. Yeah, this is, when she was, this is before Miss Marvel when she was doing Cairo and then Air with, uh, with uh, Vertigo uh, Comics. Um, yeah, we, we had got to include creators' voices even then. And I think that the... This is speaking in very general terms, but I think that like the scholars look at the artists and think, "Oh, that's cool," and then <laughs> the artists look at the scholars and go, "Oh, that, that's kind of cool." And really? then there's no, I think so. I wow. think like there's a they. I think Rob Liefeld is driving his Lamborghini no, around okay, somewhere. Not, not, <laughs> not to a person. But Said, I think wow, there those is, guys over. Those the, guys are living the life. I think there's an air of legitimacy. Yes, that yes. that some artists may uh, read into academic work. I'm not saying it's there. I'm not saying we deserve it. Um, <laughs> But I think that that interface and intersection is electric mm -hmm. um, and, and very powerful and well worth continuing to develop. Mm -hmm. and, and I would also add that this also just goes to the plain manners and the fact that people in the comics industry are just extremely nice. And, and I mean that and accessible. Yeah. Of course, there are always less nice people around. But this is also goes when I worked at the museum, I curated an exhibition about uh, about comics and the Bible, so, which was which was on display, and I reached out to people like Robert Crumb and Chris Chris Ware, who are huge names, and mm -hmm. I did not even expect to get a call back from them. And each and every artist I talked to responded and responded oh. positively. Mm -hmm. And I think that goes on the one hand. I think it's uh, it's an effect of the not not as legitimate aspect of comics 
as opposed to other mediums, right? If I go and I, don't know, I try to reach JLo, I have no idea how to how to do that. But Chris Ware actually has an email that I can that I can use. Uh, You're interesting. You picked JLo just know. out of the yeah. air. You yeah, I know, like it was simple. Jennifer if I just Lopez. if I wanted her phone number, I, I don't know. Just <laughs> haven't thought about it before. <laughs> that is a revealing psychology that of all the celebrities you reached out, I, I'm not criticizing it. Oh. I'm just it's telling. Let's say I wanted to reach Albert Einstein. <laughs> He's dead, <laughs> by the way. Do you know, it's so harder, that's what I'm talking. It's, it's so to difficult. Get his phone it's so difficult. It's Necromancy so difficult. and yeah. That's the one. Uh, or Barack Obama. Okay, I'm trying. I'm, I'm okay. grasping at straws here. So okay. let's uh, try to reach Obama. Huge comic nerd. Huge. He I, might be. I, I, I actually, I, I, I will not be surprised if he is. But no, but no, no, go on. My point is that these these creators are also as big as they are, and Robert Crumb and Chris Ware are just two names who are huge and influential and very talented and amazing artists, they are still accessible and you can talk to them and they, and they will talk as an academic, as a museum, or even, I, I suspect, just as people. Yeah. They will try yeah. and, and talk yeah. to them. Yeah. Well, that's part of their, their work, right? Just like in, in a certain way, maybe at a different level than a pop star, you have to be around your fan base and, you know, going to... Yeah, it's true, but let's say, so not J-Lo, let's say Robert Downey Jr. or Benedict Cumberbatch. I'm not sure, you know what I mean? Like, uh -huh. I think they have... They still have, and this might change as comics get more legitimate and authoritative and acceptable, but they still have a level of access that I'm not sure, sure. that other people in other fields yeah, have. Yeah. Mm -hmm. From the creators that you've met, do you think that there's some um, common theme in terms of their, their background, you know, that, that, that either religious uh, trauma or, or positive experiences or whatever that maybe is tied to the types of stories they tell and the way that they depict religion? Um, yes, but it's a little more abstract than that. Mm. I think that if they are creators with an appreciation for and skill for narrative, for story, then they can't help but have... Um, come to engage and either embrace or reject, but reject knowledgeably, uh, uh, religious lore, religious text and narrative and er stories. Um, and the Bible looms particularly large, whether that's Old Testament, Hebrew Bible, Torah, or New Testament, um, and then we can get into the Quran, or, or we could get into uh, the Ramayana, but I think these creators that we've come to appreciate and we've come to um, enjoy their storytelling ability, whether it's visual, verbal, or both, have religious content, at least in their back pocket, at least in their toolbox. And in that, I think that's a, a widespread thing they generally share. Mm -hmm. And also many of them, if you ask them or read their biographies or sometimes in their uh, afterwards or forwards, they will say, and this is something that I've also met many times as an educator, they have this sort of revelation moment of, oh, wait a minute, it's not, it's not that bad. Or it, it is actually interesting. It is actually engaging. Whether they have religious trauma per se or just kind of an aversion, most of them some of them will have like an explicit conscious moment like, oh, wait a minute, this is actually interesting. Mm. And, then, and then starting to engage with J.T. Waldman, who we just talked about, 
actually had a very specific moment about it during the holiday of Purim, which literally means die, as in the casting of dice, uh, when he was in Spain, I think, and he, uh, and all of a sudden he started reading the scroll of Esther, and uh, said, oh my God, this is actually a text that I feel I can engage with, and then he went to yeshiva, and he did amazing work studying, and then he published seven years. amazing work. Amazing. And it was a graphic novel adaptation of the book of Esther. It's yeah. A gra- yeah, it's a graphic novel. And the, the really interesting thing about it is that because it contains every Hebrew word of Esther, it technically can be used as yes. an Esther scroll yes. within yes. the celebration of her. Mm-hmm. I, I JD, so. we're talking about you. <laughs> you know, I, I want to add one thing in, in here, and I think that um, we might get the impression that religious trauma amongst comics creators is more prevalent because we have more works that talk about that. We have more works that have come into the mainstream that their anguish or their anxiety or their struggle uh, had to be expressed. But there are also some incredibly faithful and devout comics creators that you might not realize are faithful and devout. I mean, um, J.M. DeMattis is highly spiritual, and he wrote Craven's Last Hunt uh, for Spider-Man. Mike Alred, who does Silver Surfer and Ecstatics, um, also has adapted the Book of Mormon. Um, Golden Golden Plates, exactly. So I can understand where the anguish with religion and comics creation comes from, um, but that's just the surface. I, I, I really feel that's the surface. Um, not that there's anything wrong with that. Those stories should be told also, um, but that's not where this discussion ends. Yeah. So what, what about stories that, that you can point to that do a good job showing strong representation of religions that people wouldn't automatically look to or characters that come from those backgrounds. I was going to bring up Infidel that recently came out, the horror comic by Pornsak Pietro and, um, uh, excuse me, it's, it's, oh, no, it's Jose Villaruba. Um, they do but, a very nice job of portraying layered, but layered are there, Muslim characters. Are there, you know, when we think of Catholic characters, you know, you think of Daredevil right away or yeah. Nightcrawler or somebody like that, right? Think of Jewish characters, obviously, in more recent interpretations of the thing or Shadowcat or what have you. You know, there's more it's sort of an in vogue thing for there to be a bit more Muslim characters that are that are there and present, you know, with Miss Marvel leading the way and probably a few others as well. I mean it could be superhero comics, it could be fantasy, whatever the case is, but you know, Mormons or you know, like one of the the, the jokes about what is that that show, um, Expanse, right? It's Mormons in space, yes. right? Like where that. are the where are the Hasidic Jews in space? Where you know, where are the Zoroastrians in space? You know, that's sort so I, I wonder if, if you guys who you know consume a lot of this work, if you've if you've noted strong representations, even if it's not necessarily the feature character. Well, when you talk about the expanse, I've actually used the expanse in a in a in a small educational conference I did at the Museum of the Jewish People. We talked about Jewish futures. Uh, and I know also Columbia University, I think, does something uh, of the sort just a few months ago. And I used from the expanse from the books because they have, like, they have a ketubah, they talk about, and what I love about it is the offhandedness of how they put Jewish 
uh, uh, not just Jewish, but, but to me that's what I pick up on. Uh, so there, there is a group of eight people that have this ketubah that arranges their matrimony to each other. They're eight different persons, right? Men and women who have this marriage and they use a ketubah. There is a spaceship called Neve Avivim, which means a new oasis in Hebrew, just quickly translate, or when the pilot, uh, when the Martian pilot goes back home and he wonders whether he has time to go to the synagogue or not, right? And this is just like, and what I love about it, it just shows, yes, we'll still be, and the expanse is wonderful in the fact that it shows that humans will still be humans wherever they are, we'll still be greedy, we'll still be mean, we'll still be like, we'll have hierarchies and we'll want money and want everything. And part of that is we'll also still be, some of us will also still be religious. And right. some of us, but that religion also, you know, he flies a spaceship all day, he doesn't pray the Shema, but when he comes home, he's like, should I go to the synagogue? He's like wondering, but that is part of religious right. life. Some of us are more devout, some of us are less, some right. of us are not. Right. It's hard to think that, that in a couple of hundred years that all of these things would suddenly somehow go away. These things exactly. that have existed That was predicted in the 80s. We were at the end right. of religion right. in the 80s and it was predicted quite wrong. So, I meant the 1980s. It's a different millennialist movement. <laughs> you know, you said The Expanse. I also thought about, um, when it was briefly on the air, Firefly. I loved oh, yeah. the character of Book, right. uh, who was their shepherd, who was this, like, omni-religious yeah. character with an assassin's background or, or something. Uh, there was something beautiful about that that I thought it was a really good portrayal. He wasn't just chased and mm -hmm. above it all. And he was in the dirt with all of them and right. had his own sins, um, his own sins top of mind. So I liked that portrayal a lot. I miss, I miss that character. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I am trying to create those characters in my comics work with Kismet Man of Faith. Mm -hmm. uh, I am trying to bring an array of Muslim characters, of characters that identify as Muslim, um, into an everyday space, right. into uh, a, an adventure story, a quasi-superhero story. Um, I'm hoping to be successful with that because I'd like to respond to exactly the question uh, you're asking, but you know, readers and critics will decide yeah. if, that's actually, if that's actually done. Well, it's a, it's a you know, this, the idea of like even the nuance, right? If you're talking about creating a Jewish character or creating a Christian character, right? I suppose for some people it could it could be they wear a golden cross around their neck or something like that, and that's basically the extent of it. They're not really going to church, right? But what would it mean for a character actually to, to be specifically Lutheran, you know, as opposed to Catholic, as opposed to Pentecostal, you know? And those are things that I don't see that nuance represented, yeah. you know? It's either there's a character that's just so over-the-top, scenery-chewing, you know, sort of hitting you over the head with the Bible, yeah. literally or figuratively, mm -hmm. you know, depending on how it's written. Or in the same case, you know, like I was saying before about the Jewish characters, it doesn't go beyond, you know, around the, the holiday issue of Fantastic Four, the thing is wearing it's either the holiday or the Holocaust. Or that, that's yeah, that's the <laughs> thing. That's right. Although, I mean, the interesting thing about it is that, rightly or wrongly, actually, in the, X -Men, the early X-Men films, the portrayal of Magneto oh, yes. during the Holocaust was right. was a, it was a very well thought out set of scenes that you know was 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 jarringly different from <laughs> from the rest of the content of the of those movies and and I thought that they did um, a really great 
you know, portrayal of somebody who is both a victim and, and then villain, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree, but I, but I think I agree, and I think also Magneto is a very interesting character, it's a very interesting work on Magneto as a Holocaust survivor, mm-hmm. uh, both creatively and academically, but the problem is, as you said, so like the thing does Hanukkah, and Magneto uh, survived the Holocaust, mm-hmm. but Jewish nuance and Christian nuance. Right, and right. There's like much more there's there so much more than Hanukkah there. and the Holocaust. Right, there has exactly, to be more exactly. to Jewish existence than that. Yeah, very good. Yeah, yeah. So, so you don't really find, um, you, you don't find Kitty going out with her friends and having to worry about. Kashrut. Yeah, right. yeah. What can I eat? And, and um, yeah, it is that nuance. So, I mean, early in Kitty's textual existence in the comics, really the only signal that you get is the little necklace, the necklace right? Yeah. And if you contrast yeah. that, with a character like um, Reverend William Stryker, who is clearly painted as as far right wing evangelical political preacher, out to uh, commit genocide against What's all. What's the people. name of that series that, that he appears in? Uh, there God that... loves, man kills. There you go. Yep. Um, I actually have a piece on that coming out. This is why it's on my. You don't say. That's why it's on my mind. Um, but yeah, just the overkill. Yeah. With the characterization of Stryker and the nuance with Kitty, I mean, it's just it's striking. Um, and at the same time, though, we have to we have to remember that uh, sometimes a character standing like this, sometimes somebody in a cruciform pose, they're just standing like that. Sometimes so it, a cigar is just a yeah, cigar. So it doesn't with, have to mean. We had a discussion yeah. recently. It, it, Will Eisner, the one of the granddaddies of comics. Uh, of whom the Eisner Awards, given in comics, is named after, he argued that you have to, that comics by necessity has to work in stereotypes. This is something that he argued some time ago. You need the quickest symbol, the quickest sure. visual representation. So a clerical collar, a yarmulke, sure. those are going to, uh, Hasidic payos and so forth. Those are going to be the quickest thing to convey what this character is. Yet later in his career, uh, and I think particularly as comic studies has grown, we've said that might yeah. not be a good enough excuse. Yeah. That, that efficiency and expediency might not be enough of an excuse for a heavily racialized character, a heavily effeminate character to convey something about uh, uh, their sexual preference, or a demonstrably re- uh, religious uh, character standing in for all religions. So I like to think that comics and comic scholarship has grown past what was a a reasonable co- position considering the fringe status of comics earlier in the 20th mm-hmm. century. I don't think it works now. I think the nuance that you're looking for is now the responsibility uh, of serious comics creators. Well, and the, the benefit of, it, as we're talking about nuance and religious identity, the benefit of comics is the same benefit that you find in TV. They're, they're mm-hmm. both serialized. Yeah. And one of, my favorite, uh, one of my favorite observations about the way in which characters can grow on TV um, is from Gene Ostro, the old TV critic um, for the Denver Post, who said about um, one show in particular, NYPD Blue, that, that it's only in TV that you get to see the growth of a soul. 
because over numerous episodes or in numerous issues, you can do things with characters. You can represent that interior monologue in a way that you simply can't in other media. And it allows for the presentation of that nuance in religious identity in a way that I, is almost unique. And that's why Friends is one of the greatest religious texts of our time. Oh, absolutely. No, Holiday <laughs> Armadillo. Holiday Armadillo. But to get back to, to Eisner, but using what Dan said, I mean, I think, I think Eisner may have said what he said also because he, earlier in his career, uh, used racial stereotypes very much uh, in the spirit, etc. But I think he himself, his later work, in books like A Contract with God actually shows how what he says is not true because Karvet is a wonderful, nuanced look at this notion of a covenant, Jewish covenant, but any religious covenant with a deity and what, it, what does guilt and responsibility mean in our world today. And, and so I think, and to tie it in with what Dan said is that the more comics look at themselves as long form, meaning not just repetitive episodes, but, tr but mm. building uh, longer and longer arcs, right? Either coming out with books that are 100 and 200 and 300 pages long, or thinking about arcs that are one or two and two year long, you can do that sort of nuance. Can I offer what I don't think is a counterexample, but I think is a, um, an example that we don't necessarily want to laud, that we don't necessarily want to heap praise upon. You mentioned how you know uh, you can see a character grow and you can see an artist's work and their soul. Now, I think of a creator like Dave Sim. Dave Sim created Cerebus, yeah. right? And he, uh, from beginning to end, over time, his view became more and more fringe. Uh, yeah. Many have said misogynistic. Yeah. He became more spiritually centered, but not spiritually centered in a way that many would agree with. Yeah. So we got to see, similarly, his work and his personality, and he would write lengthy screeds at the end of each issue. <laughs> Uh, and between issues and around issues and at cons, but we get to see a similar development um, in a way that veers away from maybe a shared understanding or from pluralism and into something a little more isolated. I still find that fascinating. Mm. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And one, one can also add to that Frank Miller. Sure. Yes, yeah. who's, uh, yeah, who's, he wasn't, you know, the biggest pluralistic ever, but uh, but but he definitely had other views in the 80s when he did his masterpieces, and later you could see his work taking a more and more darker tone. Yeah. Although uh, his was more more like social commentary than religious yeah. or spiritual. It no? was Islamophobic in yeah. both many yeah. regards, right. which he has made more recent comments saying, I don't know what I was thinking. Oh, interesting. Um, <laughs> so there has he's been some self-reflection. Oh, There's okay. been some self-reflection, but he hasn't made very much public comment on it. I just, I just want to note that we can watch the ebb and flow of a person, someone getting, uh, being in a more spiritually centered place, a less spiritually centered place, yeah. a reflective place. Uh, Frank Miller's a fine example. Well, that, that's an interesting point in, in, when we're thinking about comics because we don't have, we don't have um, 
the situation now, like we did in years past, where uh, at least on the on some of the larger books, that you've got continuous creators that are going mm. for. Yeah. I mean, maybe you've got like a Bendis who's who's yeah. who's going for years and years on Spider-Man like that. But you know, a lot of them, the artists are changing very quickly. They've got sort of their six month, twelve month season that they're doing on a character. They've made their sort of stamp on it. So I wonder a if few you are can... under the radar, though. I'm yeah. sorry, I didn't mean to yeah, cut no, off no, your no. question. There are a few operating <laughs> under the radar, quietly building lengthy runs, even if they're not trumpeted like that. Yeah. I think of Jason Aaron on Thor. Now, I don't usually think of it as Jason Aaron's Thor because it's jumped different series and jumped. Uh, it's had but he's crossover. been the continuous writer on he's that. He's been largely the continuous writer on that. We had since uh, the what was it, the God Bomb and all that. Even before that, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Right, I think want to say. Uh, right after the the whole Secret Wars reset, and, yeah. and maybe even predating that, uh, also Dan Slott put his mark on Spider Man for a lengthy period of time. I don't think we're seeing the trumpeted uh, John Byrne takes over Superman. This will be a gr grave new era. I, I think we're seeing people try their hand and then not uh, twelve issues. Sorry, or they're just given rope to, yeah. to go for a while. I love that you mentioned Jason Aaron because I love his Southern Bastards. I, I want to see much more of that. Mm. Um, it, but it's also, I think, part, partly due to <laughs> pragmatic publishing. Yeah, so, it really is. Well, it's I mean, a whole different world, right? Oh, yeah. So, and, I mean, and they are thinking about the TV model as, about, as the example yeah, for it. They're, think, they're thinking about, I mean, grandiose, they're thinking about TV or film, but at a kind of micro level, they're thinking, okay, Marvel's only going to publish a graphic novel with six issues, so I've got to think about a six-issue arc here that can hopefully get published there, that might get collected later on or turned in, but at, at the bottom level, it's, it, it's, you're right, it's the small arcs. When it comes to superhero publishing, right, in the exactly. U.S. specifically, the tail has long wagged the dog. Right now, it's Hollywood that calls, we're going to uh, revive and resuscitate the Captain Marvel character so that we can launch this huge movie. Huge movie. But before that, it was toy lines mm -hmm. that they had to obey. And before that, it was the Hulk television show yeah. uh, or the Chris Reeves Superman movie or the Michael Keaton Batman movie. So that shouldn't be terribly surprising if there's actually a corporate uh, hand in here. What should be surprising is when amidst all that the business of comics, we are still getting uh, works with some spiritual message, yes. with some yeah. religious portrayal, yes. with diversity, with pluralism. Um, the most amazing thing, particularly about the mainstream superhero industry for me right now, is they have taken a rather strong, um, liberal, mm -hmm. multicultural, uh, and multi-religious Tone. Now, I don't know if that's for show, right? That, that could just be. Is that good. true for DC as well? To a degree, you don't have Superman. We, they, I haven't seen one comic of Superman going in and shaking Donald Trump's hand. Yeah. You know true. what I mean? I, I haven't true. seen yeah. one issue of Wonder Woman declaring that the Amazonian way is the only true way. Amazonians first. Um, so we could, we could definitely argue the particulars. Is this necessarily a progressive left? No, probably not. Is this, it's maybe a, even a centrist left. But still, in uh, the global and domestic U.S. environment, that's amazing. So as we wrap up, are, are there um, 
books that are coming out or, or other media that relate to comics that, that you're particularly excited about that, again, focus on some of these uh, inter, interplay between comics and religion? If I can plug something that will come out, I hope, in the next two years. If it comes in the next two years, I'm happy. I'm currently working on a comic book. I want to come out in English and in Hebrew, uh, a graphic novel that will depict how the Bible was written. Right, so not the stories in the Bible, not Genesis, right? But how, like, the actual people, to the extent we know, of course, because this is, but, but biblical scholarship and trying to, this will be for young adults, so we're thinking about ages nine or ten and up, about how the, how the Bible came to be from basically like this small tribe of people who took different ideas from, from the ancient East and put them together into this, like, well, amalgamation of different books and said... This is it. This is the thing. This is uh, this is what we worship now. Uh, yeah. So that's what I'm that's working on. Well, that might be the first time that we ever get to see Ezra and Nehemiah in a comic. Really? I don't wow. know of any. I can't think of one. I mean, other than graphic Bibles. But yeah. all right, that's a great point because they are. Th that's like the end scene. Right now, Ezra is the is the end scene. Yeah. Reading. Don't give away the ending. <laughs> oh, spoiler <laughs> alert! We know how but it you, turned but out. You, yeah, exactly. But, but you can you can find it. In the, in the Bible. Yeah. Um, just a couple of things. Uh, so Greg Stevenson right now is editing a book called uh, Theology in the Marvel Universe that I think is going to be really fun. I've got a chapter in there, as I mentioned earlier, on uh, Bible and violence in X-Men comics. Um, I'm at the tail end of editing an Oxford handbook to the Bible in American popular culture, and we've got two chapters in that, one on uh, biblical or comic adaptations of Bible, and one on graphic Bibles. So Elizabeth Ray Cootie does the former, and Scott Elliott does the latter. Cool. Wow. Those are great chapters, too. Yeah. Cool. I got nothing. No. Oh, come on. <laughs> I got nothing. No He's always got no books on a plug. Oh, on. there's stuff. Like, you said stuff I'm excited about. I'm oh. thinking, <laughs> I was thinking, the, the stuff, stuff that I'm working on. like contractual obligation. <laughs> yeah, no, the stuff that I'm working on. So, I mean, I mentioned, uh, I'm, I can... I think I can say here, the ink's not dry yet, but uh, Kismet Volume 2 is in the works. Yeah. So that's very exciting for me. I don't and know if it's exciting for anyone else. And who's the publisher for that one? That's A Wave Blue World, A-W-B-W. Um, and uh, I will say that there's, I think, a book coming out this year uh, on Ms. Marvel uh, that I got to contribute a chapter to looking at Islamic eschatology. The end, end times uh, issues with Ms. Marvel because she actually faced, along with the rest of the Marvel superhero universe, the end of the universe. Uh, so if that, and I thought it was particular the way that was that was portrayed. Is that the fourth or the fifth end of the universe? Oh, there've been so many. Okay, yeah. I, didn't know, been, I didn't know if we were still counting. There's like Eschaton one, Eschaton two, Eschaton three, Eschaton four. Um, uh, but I. I'll just bring this all full circle. I think there is a religious element even to the graphic medicine work uh, that that I'm drawn more and more to, and I hope to, as early as the Comic Studies Society Conference in a few months, uh, try to start weaving those threads together. Cool. Thank you, Jack. Cool, guys. This is fun. Yeah, Thank you so we much. We should take a photo together. Yes, please. Dear listeners, that's a wrap on this week's Interfaith-ish. I want to thank my guests, the amazing A. Dave Lewis, the daring Dan Clanton Jr., and the astonishing Asif Gamzu. 
be sure to look for their numerous publications online, especially at sacredandsequential.org. I've also listed an extensive bibliography for all the books and media referenced during our conversation in the show notes for this episode. You can find our entire catalog of interfaith-ish episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, basically anywhere you listen to podcasts. So remember to subscribe and leave us a rating and review so more folks can find out about us. We're on social media at Interfaith-ish, and you can email us about the Interfaith-ish you wish to dish at interfaithish at gmail.com. That's I-N-T-E-R-F-A-I-T-H-I-S-H at gmail.com. We'd love to hear what you think. As always, a big shout out to my fellow Interfaith astronauts, Sue Katz-Miller and Miranda Hovemeyer for being my team behind the scenes, and to our resident DJ, Jeff Philosopher, for our show's music. We'll have another awesome episode of Interfaith-ish in two weeks. Until then, keep it locked to WOWD 94.3 FM for great music and programs, seven days a week, streaming online at TacomaRadio.org.